Well, I want to thank you for your hospitality this weekend and your uh, gift and the offering. I appreciate being here with you this weekend. It's been good to fellowship with you and connect with some people that uh, I have known over the years and don't get to see very often, and some of you that uh, I know a little bit. It was just great to be be together, and I, I am uh, grateful for the opportunity to, to be here. I plan to go to uh, Pennsylvania tomorrow. I'll be there till Thursday, and then I'll be home on, uh, on Thursday. So thank you for your prayer support for this weekend, and, and it's, been, it's been good to be with you here as a, a church fellowship. We've talked about, on Friday evening, about spiritual relationships uh, among us as men, uh, yesterday we talked about um, um, interpersonal relationships. This morning we talked about marriage and family relationships. This evening I'd like to talk about our relationship to the kingdom of God and the world around us. Uh, we live in a, a broken world. We live in a world where there are broken relationships between God and humanity. There's broken relationships between people. There's broken relationships between human beings, and there's a brokenness within ourselves and our own view of ourselves. And that's why we often pray in the Lord's Prayer, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When you stop and think about that, uh, we're longing for the kingdom because the kingdom coming is going to uh, make a difference in the brokenness in our own lives and in the brokenness of the world around us. And so we long to be part of something that is healed, something that has been redeemed, something that has been transformed into what it really was intended and envisioned to be. We think about uh, if God's will were done on earth the way it is in heaven, what would the world be like? How is God's will done in heaven? Well, it's done perfectly. What he wants is done, and it just is that way. And what would it be like in our world if uh, tomorrow morning at 6 o'clock something would shift in the way the world works and God's will would be done on earth the way it's done in heaven? What would be some of the things that would be changed? How would the world be a different place? Wouldn't it be phenomenal to live in, in, in that kind of a world? And the amazing thing is that that is the project that God is working on in our world through the kingdom and he's using the church to bring change to the world. The church is God's program to change the world. And so when we're involved in the church, we're involved in the greatest endeavor that humanity or the world has ever seen because it's through the church that God is going to bring change to the world. And that's how Jesus is impacting and working in our world today. When Jesus came and began his ministry... In Luke chapter 4, he went to the synagogue in Nazareth after his temptation, and he made a statement there. He, he read a passage out of Isaiah that really became, it really was kind of his mission statement. And in chapter 4 of Luke, verses 18 and 19, Jesus read the passage from Isaiah where it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. So when we think about Jesus, we recognize that Jesus is the Redeemer. We have been lost. We've been under the power of sin and the devil. That's what's broken in our world today. 
Each of us has taken our own way. We've all gone astray. Not one of us is righteous. There's not any of us who have done rightly throughout our lives. We've lived for the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And too often we've thought only of ourselves and not of others. We've been selfish and cruel and deceitful. And we live in a world that is not as it ought to be. There are children that are in slave labor. There are women that are trapped in the sex trade. There are men who have lost their land and become servants to others. And there are billions who have never really heard a clear explanation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and doesn't, don't really know the path to freedom from sin and to be part of the kingdom of God. And so we have to ask ourselves when we look at the world, how is the world going to change? How is it ever going to be a different place than what it is and left to ourselves? Humanity is a failure and, and, and society is, is, is a failure. And what is really going to bring change and success into our world? And as I said, God's program to change the world is the church. We're part of the greatest organization that the world has ever seen. The church and the kingdom of God transcends national, ethnic, cultural, racial boundaries. There are all these uh, boundaries and walls that exist in our world and, and ways that the world is segregated into different groups and, and different uh, uh, cultures and societies and all those things. But all of those fade away in the face of the kingdom of God and in the face of the church. And we have a message. The message of the redemption of the Lord Jesus Christ transcends all of those boundaries and all of those walls that exist in, in the world. And so change is going to come through people individually coming into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Change is going to come not by having better politicians or by having a better educational system or having a better economic system or, or somehow bringing societal change through government or political structures, but change is going to come into the world as men and women individually, singly, one by one, make a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ and recognize that he is their redeemer and that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. That is the message that we have to bring to the world. And it's the good news of the gospel. We're not going into the world with the bad news. We're going into the world with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Change is going to come when people are transformed by the power of God. The greatest miracle that you're ever going to see, sometimes we read scripture and we think, what would it have been like to be on Mount Carmel with Elijah and see fire just come down from heaven and burn up the sacrifice and the altar and the water and all that? Wouldn't have that been amazing? And we think about some of the other miracles in, in the scripture. And we think, Wouldn't it be great to have been there and seen that? But yet the greatest miracle that ever happened on earth is the transformation of a sinful heart when a person is brought into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and their spiritual healing that takes place in their lives and most of us in this room have experienced that in our own lives. We witnessed it ourselves because it happened to us. And sometimes we've been believers for so long that we almost forget what we were like before we were redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. And we, we tend to forget what we would be if we had not been redeemed by the blood of Christ. And it's good for us to stop and think about where we would be if it had not been for the intervention of God in our lives and the transformation that he made in our lives. I, uh, we, as I told you before, we lived in Haiti for a year back in 1989 and 1990, which is a long time ago now. And, and since that, I've been going back to Haiti twice a year um, uh, for well, almost 25 years now. And, um, and so I, I, I've continued my relationships with the people in the community there. 
On one of my trips back, there was a little girl that was uh, attending church um, there at the church that we were part of in, in Haiti. And she was a really precocious, vivacious little girl, talked a lot. And she came by the house where I was staying. She was about five or six years old. She came by the house where I was staying and, and uh, she was talking to me and she wanted me to say her name in English. And I said, well, what is it? And she told me and I didn't quite understand it. She said it really fast and I said, I'm not sure what it is. And she said it again and, and I said, I'm still not sure. Say it again. And, and she said, oh, a white person so big and you can't even say my name in English. I said, well, you got to say it real slow. And so she did. And her name was Angie Maylude Baptiste in English, Baptiste in, in, in Creole. And so uh, we just, and she was, a, she was an amazing little girl. She'd come to church. She was from a non-Christian family. None of her family were believers. She lived a few houses down from the pastor and somehow she got connected with their family and started coming to church and, and she got saved. And she would come to church and every service she'd come to church and she would, they'd have a worship time, a time of testimony and singing. And Angie would always get up and she'd sing a song. And then uh, after she sang her song, she would say, church, pray with me that my mother will become a Christian. And so she was praying for her mother's salvation. Well, six months later, I'm back, another six months, and her mother was starting to come to church, and she was still singing and asking the church to pray for her mother. And then her mother got saved, and I helped to baptize her mother and came back, and Angie was still singing in church and giving her testimony and talking about how the Lord saved her. And and she told her mother one time, she told her mother uh, they were in bed sleeping, or they were in bed, and I guess they weren't sleeping yet, and some of the um, uh, voodoo worshipers, the Rao Rao group came by the, their house, and they were out on the street uh, blowing their, their horns and dancing and, and their drums and stuff, and, and her mom said that, Angie said, oh, mom, I'd rather be sick than be out there on the street with those uh, people worshiping the devil. She said, I will never do that. I got saved, and when I got saved, I'm, I'm going to be saved for the rest of my life, and and so uh, then Angie was coming to church and she was singing and, and, and giving her testimony. And she was saying, church, pray for my, for my dad. Pray that my dad will get saved. And I thought, well, there's a long-term project. Uh, they can pray because I knew her dad and he was a rough individual, a, a tough person and, and somebody you didn't really want to be around. And I thought, well, that'll, uh, that'll keep them busy for a while. And so they were praying for her dad. Came back a few more times over another year or so. And her dad was starting to come to church. And eventually her dad got saved. And I helped to baptize her dad. We came back from the river from baptizing her father. And the people who had been baptized gave their testimonies. And Angie's dad got up and gave his testimony. And he said, I am so thankful that God directed our lives as a family up to this point. He was saying, when my wife, Angie was their oldest daughter. He said, when my wife got pregnant with Angie... I told my wife, this cannot happen. We don't have enough money to live just by ourselves, and we cannot have a child. We don't have enough money to feed another mouth. You are going to have to get an abortion, so you must go to the clinic and get an abortion. So his wife went to the clinic. She checked it out. She found out how much it would cost to have an abortion, and she found out which, what was the last week of her pregnancy that they would do an abortion for her. And so he said, we started saving money, and we saved money, and we saved money. But he said, the last week that the clinic would do an abortion came, and we didn't have enough money to pay for the abortion. He said, I tried to borrow money from family and friends, and nobody would loan me any money, and I could understand why. And he said, we couldn't, we couldn't afford the abortion. And so he said, we didn't have the abortion, and Angie was born. And he said, but through Angie, God brought our whole family to salvation. And he said, if we would have got enough money for my wife to have an abortion we could still all be lost in our sins. And God used Angie to bring our whole family to salvation. 
You know, sometimes you may have a children's club and you've got a little five-year-old that doesn't know how to be quiet and they're just kind of bouncing around and all that and you're not quite sure what to do with them. That five-year-old may be the greatest evangelist your church is ever going to have. You don't know what God is going to do with anybody. We're all kind of an unwritten story and, and God does some amazing things through people that, that we may underestimate and we not, may not put enough of significance on what God might do through that person. Sometimes we have our own ideas, but God has His way of bringing people to salvation and bringing them into relationship with himself. Many years ago, my wife and I were involved in Sunday school on the Eagle Lake Reserve, and we were do, wanted to do uh, adult uh, Sunday school class. But um, the only adults that would come to Sunday school were uh, uh, a few women that would come when they were intoxicated, so that wasn't working out real great, and so we were looking for other ways to to do ministry with, with adults, and uh, someone told me, um, well, you have to recognize that, uh, look at the spiritual background, of the, the religious background of the people, because uh, this community was largely a Catholic, Roman Catholic background, their, their spirit, their religious background had been Roman Catholic, and he was saying, you know, when you have people have a Protestant background, uh, if you go to church, uh, that's a good thing. Everybody ought to go to church. It's really good to go to church. If the pastor comes to visit you, it might be good, it might be bad. You don't, you don't really know for sure. Your neighbors don't know for sure if the pastor coming to visit you is a good thing or a bad thing. It might be good, but maybe you did something you shouldn't have and the pastor's coming to visit you, so it's a little bit questionable. However, if you're from a Roman Catholic background, uh, if you go to church, uh, that might be good, it might not be. Maybe, you're going, maybe you need some, to confess something, maybe you did something you shouldn't have and you are feeling a need to go to church and confess it. But if the priest comes to your house and you're a friend with the priest, that's a really good thing. And so you can't have better friends than the priest, so you really, that's, all, that's always good. So you have to recognize these people from Roman Catholic background, it's going to be hard for them to come to a place where you're having a group meeting. But if you go to their house, that's always positive. So we started doing home Bible studies, and that really worked. And my wife had a Bible study with a couple ladies, and uh, their husbands were, were guys that they were pretty respectable people. They were kind of nice guys, and I liked them, and I'd do stuff with them. And I just thought that, you know, these women got saved, and, and maybe God would save one of their husbands. And we were really praying for a man to get saved in the community and so that we'd have a, a family that could help to get a church started and, and begin a, a spiritual ministry in the community. But we recognized that uh, we needed a man, at least one, and preferably a couple of men. So I was visiting these men, going fishing with them, and doing all kinds of stuff with them. And, I'd be, and I thought they were so close to the kingdom. They were really good guys, and it wouldn't take that much to save them because they were pretty good already. And so it wouldn't be that big of a change for them to get saved. And, and so I was you know, talking to them, and, I, and I'd ask them, uh, you know, would you have a Bible study with me? And they'd say, oh, yeah, I'd like to do that. And so I'd set a time with them. I'd show up, and they'd be gone, and they'd never be there. And so it just never happened. So we were still praying for a man. And then one day, there was a man in the, on the reserve who, he was a drug dealer and an alcoholic and just, he was, he was a mess. And, uh, and he had been on a drunk for a couple of weeks and things had gotten so bad that his wife had left him and he was at home alone. And in the middle or at the end of that period of drunkenness, he remembered that uh, a week or so ago, somebody had come by the house while he was intoxicated and given him a tract, and he had laid it on top of his refrigerator, and so he got up and pulled that tract off of his refrigerator and read it, and the Holy Spirit convicted him of his sin, and he decided it's time for him to repent and get saved. So he called a local pastor, and the local pastor kind of knew him, 
and thought, this guy is so intoxicated, I don't even want to go to his house because the guy was crying and he was all upset and he thought, this, is, this guy isn't even coherent, but he said he's going to go anyway and he went and he led him to salvation and, and the man became saved and, he, and the Lord delivered that man from his alcohol addiction, his drug addiction, and, he just, and his wife came back home and she got saved and, we, and there we had a Christian couple and then we put my wife's Bible study and I started a Bible study with this couple and we put them together and and it was the beginning of something really powerful and really beautiful. But you see, I would have never chosen that man to be the person to get saved. But what happened when he got saved was there wasn't anybody in that village who could say, well, yeah, it'll work for him, but it would never work for me. Because he was the kind of person, if it worked for him, it was going to work for anybody in that village. And so it was a powerful testimony of the transformational power of salvation and what God can really do in the life of a person. And so... We have to remember that God can do amazing things above what we think is even possible. And sometimes we look at people and we kind of write them off, but God saves to the uttermost. There's no one that's beyond the reach of the grace of God. The world is groaning for redemption and, and we are looking for Jesus as our redeemer. Humanity is groaning as we see the pain in the world around us. There's brokenness everywhere in the third world, in every continent, in our nations here in North America, in our states and provinces, in our cities and towns. The world is groaning under the weight of sin, and the good news is that the kingdom of God is at hand, and it's here, and salvation is available to us today. And I would suggest to you, young people, I would just suggest to you that there are many, many people in our world today that are seeking thrills in all the wrong places. And they're doing all kinds of extreme things, trying to find a thrill. And so they, you know, strap boards on their feet and throw themselves off a cliff and, you know, think they're going to die. And then they get to the bottom and it's like, yes, that was great. I thought I was going to die. I want to go up and do that again. And, but it's a cheap thrill because it, it, isn't, it doesn't really have any eternal significance. And yeah, it's thrilling, but it doesn't last very long. And I'm not saying you shouldn't do those kinds of things. I'm just saying that it's a pseudo Adventure, it's a pseudo-thrill because it's, it's a pseudo-adventure. Real adventure comes from getting involved in the program of the kingdom of God and what God is doing in the world. And God is doing some pretty amazing things in our world today. And when we get involved in what God is doing in the world, then we get a thrill that has significance and meaning because it's, it really does make a difference for eternity and make a difference for for what God is doing in the world. And so I just encourage you, if you're looking for what to invest your life in and how to find something that is really motivating and thrilling, then get involved in what God's doing in the world. Look for places where God is working and what you can do to get involved in the program that God has to change the world and bring the good news of the gospel to the world. And I can guarantee you that there are things that God is doing in the world that if you get involved in those things, It'll scare you half to death more than any extreme sports you can get involved in. And you'll wonder how in the world you're ever going to accomplish what you've just set out to do. And you're never going to get it done unless the presence and power of God is with you and helps you to get the things done that you've set out to do. And if you don't believe me, go with me a few places. I'll take you some places where that'll happen to you. And I'd love to take you, some of you guys with me sometimes when I travel. Last uh, two years ago, I went with uh, Raymond Burkholder from IGO to uh, Myanmar. We, uh, we went to Myanmar to do a conference. Uh, we were going to do a conference out on one of the islands down on the, um, on the coast, on the southern coast of, um, of uh, uh, Myanmar, Burma. So we flew into Rangoon and met our, our, um, our host there, and, and he had arranged the, the, the travel and the conference, and, 
and we, uh, we set, set out, and he said, we're going to do the, the overnight bus from Rangoon down to uh, Laputa, which is a little town on the coast, and then we'll go by boat from there out to the island. So uh, we said, um, all right, that, that's okay. And so we went over, and we got on, got on the bus about 6.30 in the evening. We said, how long of a bus ride is it? Well, he said, it's about, uh, it's about eight hours uh, down there. So, okay, so we got there. Well, the bus, um, it was... Uh, it was a bus, uh, kind of, and uh, we got on the bus. There were seats for 40 people on the bus. If you had, you know, there were 20 seats on each side of the aisle and two people in a seat, so that's 40 people. Well, we counted when they got ready to leave. There were 73 people in the bus, and it was so full that at one point where we stopped for a rest break, the driver told everybody to get in the bus, we're ready to go. So everybody got in the bus, and the driver climbed in the window on the driver's side because that was easier than getting everybody to move so he could get into the driver's seat. And so we drove about um, three, four hours. We drove about four hours, and uh, then and the road was kind of the way it was, and it wasn't very good. And then we got, after about four, about 10.30, 11 o'clock that night, they stopped, and then they said, now the road's not so good, so the bus can't go, and so we have to take a truck. And so we sat by the road there till about midnight, and then the truck came, and, and it was just a straight truck with a uh, canopy on the back, and so they piled all the luggage up on top as much as they could, and then they packed all the people in the back of the bus, uh, the truck, and then they put people up on top of the luggage then, and Raymond and I got to sit in the front with the driver because we were the old guys, and so that was pretty good, and so we got up there. So then we went for an hour in the truck, and, and that was uh, an experience all of its own, and then... They said, all right, now we can get bus again. So we got out of the truck, and then we got another bus. And that bus was worse than the first one. I, there was something wrong with, I don't know, it had a mechanical problem. The driver could hardly get it in gear. And so it would grind and grind and grind. And so, and then eventually he'd, he'd get it in gear. So sometimes when he stopped, he would just push the clutch in and turn the switch off. And then he'd start it up with the clutch in, and then he'd still be in gear. And if he wanted to back up, he had to get people to crawl over. All the people in the bus, his helper would crawl back over the people, and he'd lift up the floorboard and reach down there and pull something, and then it would go in reverse, and we could back up. So eventually we got down to... And when we changed back into the second bus, now it's like 1.30 in the morning, and, and it was about 2 o'clock till they got the second bus loaded. And we were standing there on the road at 2 o'clock in the morning. It's pitch dark. And we see this light kind of coming down the road, just kind of meandering back and forth. He said... Like, what is that? And said, it might be a bike, but it was too high for that. And so, and here, all of a sudden, out of the dark, this shape came out, and it was a bus with no lights. And they had a guy hanging out the side door with a big flashlight, and he was shining on the road in front of the bus. And we said, how, did we, how come we didn't get that bus? And so we, but we got our bus, and we went. And anyway, there, we asked them at 2 o'clock in the morning, we said, so how far is it yet? Because this was going to be an eight- or nine-hour bus ride. And they said, uh, it's still six hours from here. So I'm like, okay, so we kept going. Finally, we got down to Laputa. We got there. He said, okay, you can rest, and then we'll get the, we'll get the boat out to the, to the island. So we rested there a little bit, and then we went over. We had lunch, and then we got on the boat. And it's a long, low boat. Uh, it's called a long-tail boat. It's just kind of a low boat that's covered in the middle, and they have a, a motor with a real, the propeller is, is way out on a shaft, maybe 15, 20 feet long, and they put that thing down, and and it has a diesel engine there, and they had two guys running this, this uh, engine. And so we headed off, and we said, how long is the boat ride? Well, he said, it's probably three hours. And so we headed down the river, and, and we're doing okay. Uh, but the boat ride turned into a five-hour boat ride because when we got out to the ocean, the waves were really high. They were really rolling, and, 
And so this little boat is just going up, and the water was starting to come in. Our stuff, we were getting wet, and this, our stuff was getting wet, but it was hot, so it was, it was okay. And I wasn't too sure, but, but I kept watching the guys that were running the boat, and they were never nervous. So I, well, as long as they're not nervous, I'm going to relax. So I just rode along. We got there and got to the island. And this was a big island. There were 10 villages on the island. And when uh, Cyclone Nargis came through there in 2008 or 2009, um, about three-quarters of the people on the island died because uh, everything just got flattened. The, a lot of the trees and the houses got flattened. And these people on the island are tribal people. And the, the central government wouldn't allow any aid agencies to come in and provide aid to the island because they wanted as many people to, pos to die as possible. So, and they did because they had no food, they had no water. And so they said there were, there were just bodies everywhere and people died. So the village that we were in, before the cyclone, the population was 1,000. When we were there, the population was 250. So you had a lot of, uh, of partial families and, and it was just, the whole thing was devastated. And here's a people that know that their central government really wished they would have all died. And so there we were in the village. So we got there about, we had left the evening before at 6.30. We got to the village about 5 o'clock in the afternoon. We went and had, uh, we were staying at the deacon's house. We went and had dinner at his house. And then they said, um, we're going to have, we might have church tonight. And so about 7.30, Raymond said, you know, I think I'm going to go to bed. I'm beaten as well. I'm going to wait a little bit because they might have church yet. Sure enough, about 8 o'clock, they came and said, okay, we're ready to go to church. So we walked over to church, and then they said to us, um, uh, we want you to preach tonight. So we said, all right, uh, how long? And they said, um, maybe an hour. And we said, okay, between the two of us, that's 30 minutes each. And they said, no, no, an hour each. And we said, but it's 8.30. And they said, well, what does that have to do with anything? And so we uh, each preached for an hour. We went back, went to bed. We were going to have a conference there, but the government wouldn't allow us to have a conference because they didn't want big groups of people gathering. So they said, you can't have a conference. So our, our uh, coordinator said, all right, what we're going to do, we're going to split you guys up, and we're going to go around, and we're going to have house services. And so we went around the village having house services. We went into the, Raymond went with one interpreter. I went with another one. We got into the first house where I went, and the interpreter said, all right, this guy here that owns this house and then those people would invite their neighbors in. So we had a little house service, 20 people. And, and my interpreter said to me, we got to the first house, this man doesn't believe that you can have faith in God. He thinks if you really trust God, he's going to fail you. And you can't, really, you can't really have any confidence in God. So here you need to preach about faith. So, all right, so we sang a song or two. And then I was on to preach about faith. And so I did. And then, uh, and then there was a young man there who, who uh, his whole family had been killed by the cyclone. He was living with his uncles. And he's saying, I want to believe in Christ. I want to give my life to Christ, but I, I just don't know how. I'm not sure how. And so he came to our house later that evening and gave his heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. We went to the second house, and my interpreter said, okay, at this house, this man just became a Christian three months ago. His wife has been a believer for a number of years, but he just came to Christ, and he has a real anger problem, and he used to beat his wife. Now he knows that he's a Christian, and he shouldn't beat his wife, but he doesn't know what to do with his anger. And so here you need to preach about how a Christian husband should treat their wife and what a Christian husband should do with anger. And so we sang a song, and then I'm preaching about marriage and how a Christian husband should treat his wife. And, and we went around, we did house services all day long, and, and, that, and that's what we did. And then we went back to the house in the evening, and that's what we did for uh, the three days that we were there. And, and then uh, the last day we were there, the, and all the days I'm out there, I'm thinking, you know what, like, we're going to be here three days, and then we got to do this whole thing in reverse. we got to do the boat ride and the bus ride and the truck ride and the bus ride. All, like we're going to have to do that all again, and we did. But anyway, the last day we were on the island, uh, this, um, 
the deacon's wife, she said, you men have been here for three days and we've just been eating normal food. Now their normal food was, this island was just about six feet above sea level. And so they raised shrimp and crabs. Everybody in their backyard has a, 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 a pond. And, and, they, and on a big scale, they were raising shrimp. And they had 30-acre shrimp farms and stuff. And so they're raising shrimp and crab and fish. And so we're eating seafood. And I love seafood. We just, I, I mean, we, it was wonderful. And, but she felt really bad because that's just, that's just ordinary food. And, and so she said, tonight, I decided we're going to make a special meal for you. So we made a, I made a special dinner for you. And said, Oh, good. Like, what are we having? Well, uh, we killed a dog, and we're going to have dog curry. And so, uh, and then she said, and I fried some up separate from the curry so you could taste it without the curry. So uh, we, we ate uh, uh, fried dog and dog curry. Uh, oh, I can tell you two things about it. One is it didn't taste like chicken. And uh, the other thing is I couldn't think about a dog when I was eating it. <laughs> but, but otherwise, it was pretty good. And then we did everything backwards. But you see, that was, that, was, that was an amazing trip. But it was, it was all about letting people know that the Lord Jesus knows where they are. Their government may want them to die, but the Lord Jesus cares about them. They, he knows where they are. He knows their situation. And there is redemption for them. And, and there we were able to give the message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, secondly, not only is Jesus a redeemer, he's the healer. Jesus said that they that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. Jesus didn't come for the well. He came for the sick. He came to bind up the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. He came to save, to seek and to save those that are lost. Spiritual healing is available through the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came so that we might have life and have it more abundantly. He longs to see humanity come into a right relationship with him and experience healing. He brings us fullness of life, true meaning, and he can bring healing to our wounds. You remember the boy who was possessed by an evil spirit and the disciples couldn't deliver the boy from the evil spirit and, and, and Jesus said, uh, bring him to me. And we live in a world that is desperately broken and is wounded in very deep ways. And sometimes we look at the world around us and we don't know what to do. But the, the, the solution is for us to bring people to Jesus because it's true. We can't deliver people from their addictions. We can't heal them from the spiritual wounds in their life, but we know somebody who can. And the message that we bring into the world is, yes, you are wounded, and yes, things are broken in your life, but I know somebody that you need to know. I know somebody that you need to have an encounter with. And I will help you to meet the Lord Jesus Christ and he can heal you. He can bring freedom to you from your addictions and he can, uh, he can bring spiritual healing into your life. I, at our church, we do a, um, a meal on uh, Sunday afternoons for the street people. And uh, the street people in Sulakaut are people that many of the people in Sulakaut really don't want to have anything to do with. And, but on Sunday afternoons from 4 to 6, we, have, uh, we provide soup and sandwiches for the uh, street people. And we usually have 12 to 20 people that come and, and have a meal there at the church. And for some of them to come to the church, it's, uh, it's a real hurdle to come to a church because of their experience with church people in the past and Christian people in the past. But uh, for them to come and be able to experience relationship with those of us, uh, people who are committed to the Lord Jesus Christ, and for them to experience the care 
and for that God has for them and to know that the Lord Jesus does care about them is powerful. There's a man in Sulaqa who has been on the streets for decades. I don't know how many decades, but probably three or four decades, 30 or 40 years he's been on the street. A couple of years ago, uh, a year or two ago, he was having his 68th birthday a day or two after he was at the church for a meal. He's practically deaf, so the only way you can really talk to him is pretty much to shout in his ear. So conversations are a little limited, but he talks a lot. And he was there, and we were talking about his birthday coming up and him being 68 years old in a couple of days. And, and he was saying, I don't know how I lived so long. Like, I should have died many, many times in the past. And I'm saying, well, the Lord watches over you, and the Lord cares for you, and, and the Lord is protecting your life for some reason. And you have to recognize that God, has a, God loves you and, he, and all that. And he was very kind of talking about that. And he said, well, sometimes I think the reason I lived so long is because I know God doesn't want me, but sometimes I think I'm so bad that even the devil doesn't want me. And so they, just, they both just leave me here. And he said, when I die, how am I going to know whether I'm supposed to go up or down? And I said, well, that's not a decision you're going to have to make. That's a decision that you can make now. But I thought, you know, what would it be like to be a person that is so broken that you, you, don't, you get to the place where you feel like even the devil doesn't want me. And so I'm stuck here in life because neither side really wants to claim me. And, and yet, we have a message for people in the world like that, a message that there is hope and there's salvation and they're, they're, God does want them and he does love them. There was another lady that came to the uh, meal that we do for the street people and, and I asked her if I could pray for her and she said, yeah, you can pray for me. And, and, and then she said, and I prayed for her and when I prayed, closed my prayer in the name of Jesus, after my prayer, she said, I know that name. I know the name of Jesus. She said, my mother used to talk to me about Jesus. And she said, Every, she said, I wake up in the park in the morning and sometimes I'm crying and I want Jesus, but I don't, I don't know where to find him. And, but I know that he could, uh, he could uh, change my life. And we were able to talk about where she could find Jesus. And uh, there are people in the world that Jesus is looking for and we get to be the person who's there in the moment when the Spirit of God starts calling them. And we get to, be, we get to represent him in the flesh in those situations. Jesus is the redeemer. He's the healer. He's also the king. God is the sovereign in the universe. He has a kingdom and he reigns over that kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom and it's a kingdom that is at hand and it's here among us. And and we are working in that kingdom and we're seeing God change the world. There's no one like God in the universe. He stands in a category all of his own. And you read Isaiah chapter 6 or Revelation chapter 1 and some of those passages in Scripture that describe the scene before the throne of God and just phenomenal. And some of those Scriptures in Ezekiel, you just get the feeling that these men were struggling for words to try and describe what they were seeing. And, and it's almost indescribable to, to talk about what the throne of God looks like and what it looks like in, in that place. And, and he's there in that place. And he's in control of everything that happens in the world. He's never in a rush to keep up. He's never weary. He never sleeps. He's never surprised by the things that are going on in the world. And so in Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, Jesus makes an amazing statement. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the first and the last. I was alive, I was dead, and now I am alive forevermore. That's an amazing statement. You never met anybody 
like that who was alive and then who was dead and who now is alive again and is alive forevermore. That's, that's beyond our ability. That's amazing that Jesus is that person. He was here before it all started and he's going to be here after it's all done. He was the first to be raised from the dead. He was here before any of humanity existed and he'll be here after the world was all finished and he holds the keys to death and to hell. We have nothing to fear about our future and about eternity because the one who loves us and the one who is our redeemer and who is our healer is also the one who has won the victory over sin and over death. And he determines the course of history when, when, the, when our heavenly father decides that the earth is finished and time will be no more, it'll be finished, it'll all be done. He's already decided how it's going to end. He knows how it's going to come about. There's no doubt in our minds or in the minds of the spiritual forces in the universe who ultimately is going to win the spiritual battle that's going on. Sometimes we tend to have a feeling that we are in a spiritual battle and that there's a spiritual battle taking place in the universe and maybe God and Satan are kind of duking it out and it's a little uncertain about who's going to win and, and, and we look at the church in, in the world and we look at how it's really pretty a, a pretty small thing in comparison to what's going on in the world and we look at the needs in the world and we look at the lost world around us and it seems like such a huge thing that we get discouraged and we think, well, we can't do anything anyway and we might as well just go into survival mode and try and, and just remain faithful if we can and, and, and you know, things get worse and worse and, and many people are going to go into apostasy and there's only going to be a few that are going to be saved and we're not even sure about ourselves sometimes and we just get really in, in, all in a, in a panic and in anxiety about what's happening and how bad the world is getting and, and hey, I want to tell you something, that, that's not the view that, that the spiritual forces in the universe have of what's happening. They already know who wins. They already know how it's all going to turn out. We know that in the end, God is going to be victorious. As a matter of fact, it was never a question. And Satan is no comparison to God. He's an angel. He's a created being. He's something that God made. And when God decides that Satan is finished, he's finished. It's all done. And it, it isn't, it isn't a, there isn't any possibility of Satan overcoming God or, or, or the kingdom of God or the church. And we know that Jesus has said that when he returns, there will be a faithful church. And so I'm not in a panic about whether the church is going to survive and what's going to happen to the church. Because, uh, well, when I read a book, I, I like to read the first chapter or two and kind of get the setting and the characters and what's going on. And then I like to read the last chapter because then I know how it turns out. And then I know who marries who and who's still alive at the end. And then I can relax while I read the book because uh, I know how it turns out. It doesn't spoil the book for me because I don't know how that happens, so it's still an adventure to read the book and, and see how it all comes about. But if it's 11 o'clock at night and the hero is tied up on the railroad track and the whistle's blowing and the light from the train is coming around the corner and it's the end of the chapter, I can lay the book down and go to sleep because I know he's alive at the end of the book. I don't know how he gets off the railroad track, but I know somehow he does. And you know what? I've already read the end of the book and we have the last chapter and I know we kind of know we know how it turns out. So there's no need to be in a panic about the church and what's happening because we know there will be a faithful church at the end. We don't know how that's going to happen. We're living the adventure of God's story of history and every year is another chapter in what God's doing and we see more amazing things about how God is bringing history to the conclusion that he's already determined for it. But we don't have to be in a panic because we know how, we already know how it turns out. 
And so, you know, there are people, especially for you young people, there are people my age who will tell you they feel sorry for you because, you know, it's too bad you just weren't born in the good old days and it's too bad you were born 50 years too late and, you know, it's, they feel sorry for you the way the world is today and, you know, it's just a hard time to be alive and they don't know how you're ever going to make it and all that. Well, um, don't take that too seriously because every generation has had its challenges. There's never been an easy time to be a human being on the earth. And I don't believe that, I believe that you were born at a, a really great time to be alive. I think this t period of history is one of the most exciting times to ever have been born and ever to be alive. You have opportunities that no other generation has ever had. You have technology at your disposal that no other generation has ever had. That technology may on one hand be a challenge, but it's also a tremendous blessing. You think about the men who went into missions back in the 17 and 1800s, men like Hudson Taylor and William Carey, they went overseas. It took them months to get there. And when they got there, they didn't know if they'd ever go back home. They didn't know when they'd ever get a letter from home. Half the time, their families didn't know if they were dead or alive. And they'd have to find a ship to send a letter back to England to tell their families how they're doing. Maybe someday they'd get a letter back. Today, you can be almost anywhere in the world in 24 or 48 hours. And when you get there, you can send an email to all your friends and go on Facebook and post a few pictures. And everybody knows where you are and what it looks like. And if you get into a desperate situation and you need prayer support, you can have a couple hundred people praying for you in 30 seconds. Their technology is a wonderful thing. And you have support that no other generation has ever had the opportunity of having. You can go places and not be isolated the way so many missionaries have been in the past. Technology has made it possible to take something like Bible translation that used to take 25 years and reduced it down to a much smaller time frame because of the ability to uh, store things digitally and be able to do a job that took a generation, took a, a whole missionary's, pretty much their effective missionary lifetime to do, can now be done in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, a few years. So you have opportunities that almost no other generation has had. You have the ability to travel, you have technology, you have a, ways of communicating that were never available to any other generation. You have wealth at your disposal that, all, that no other generation in our communities has ever had. We as Mennonite people have never lived anywhere this long without being persecuted. And in the 200 and some years that we've lived here in North America, being hard workers and being frugal people, we have amassed wealth that is, and with the baby boomers aging, in the next 25 years, there is going to be more wealth transferred from one generation to another than in any other time in the history of our church as, as a movement. And a lot of that wealth, quite, quite frankly, isn't really needed by the people who are going to receive it. And if some of that wealth can be put into the work of the kingdom, we could do amazing things for the kingdom of God. And I just believe that if you and your generation, if you will be focused on what God wants to do in the world, and you will be focused and disciplined to get your resources and to get your time and your energy and your technology, and you will use it for kingdom purposes, you can do more in your generation than, than we as a people have done for a long, long time. And it's possible and you can do it. And I believe that as we get closer to the end, God is getting more and more serious about bringing the gospel, of the, the good news of the gospel to the world. And I believe he's brought some of these things into existence and into our hands so that the job can be done. And I just encourage you young people, when you people try to discourage you and they say discouraging things about you and your generation, you think about what Paul told Timothy when he said, don't let anybody despise your youth, but you be an example of the believers. And you young people, step up to the plate and you show us how it's done. 
You show us how we could have lived if we'd have had the opportunities that you have today. When I was a teenager, there was probably four or five mission organizations that as conservative Mennonites we could go to. Today you have dozens of choices. You have so many options that it's almost confusing. But you have opportunities that have never existed before. And I just encourage you to throw yourselves into the task that's at hand. The world can be a different place at the end of your lifetime uh, compared to what it is today. I believe that we as conservative Mennonites are uniquely positioned to do ministry around the world in places where other evangelical denominations are not able to be as effective in certain aspects of ministry. Some of the evangelical denominations have done a phenomenal job of evangelism, and I compliment them for it. I'm not critical of them for the evangelism that they've done. But in many places of the world, the, the church is about an inch deep and a mile wide, and there's just not much depth. There's been a lot of evangelism, but very little discipleship. There are hundreds, there are thousands of men around the world who are leading churches, who are pastoring churches, who have never had a spiritual role model. They've never had a spiritual father. They're a first-generation Christian, and they've never had the opportunity to have anybody disciple them. And they're trying to figure out how not only to live the Christian life, but how to lead a church. I was, with, uh, I was in Bhutan four years ago. There, Bhutan is an interesting country, about 600,000 people. It was closed to the gospel until the 1970s, and then they invited a Roman Catholic priest in to start a school system in English, and he did that, and a few people came to the Lord. After he had the school system started, they put him out of the country and closed the country to the gospel. In the 1990s, they began to open up the country and allow Christian people to come into the country, and people began to come to the Lord. In Bhutan now, there are about 5,000, when I was there four years ago, there was about 5,000 Christians. I didn't see one church building in the, in the country of Bhutan. We were in the second largest church in Bhutan, in the capital city in Timfu, and there are about 50 people in that church. When their churches get up to about 25 people, they divide and they, they start another house church, and, and the church is spreading throughout the country. However, all the people that, that we met, all the believers that we met were first-generation Christians. We talked to some of those pastors and they talked about the struggles that they're having in their churches. And we were saying, well, you guys are about on target. If you read the book of 1 Corinthians and you see the things that the, first, that the Corinthian church was struggling with, you're struggling with the same things. And so you're pretty much on target for the maturity of where your churches are. And so read that. And, and there's some good instruction there for how to deal with those things. And there are men who are, who are, are desperate for discipleship. And I believe that we have, uh, we have an ability to do discipleship because it's one of our strengths. It's one of the things that we do well. We've, we have had an emphasis on discipleship and we, many of us have been discipled and we know what discipleship is about. In the Pentecostal church in our town in Sulukout, there are um, two or three uh, families in the Pentecostal church who originally came from Mennonite background. The Pentecostal pastor was telling me one day, we get people who come to our church and our way of dealing with them is deliverance. We have a great deliverance ministry and we pray for them and then the Holy Spirit uh, delivers, brings deliverance into their lives, but then they're still kind of a mess and we don't know what to do with them other than to pray for more deliverance. So he said, what I do with those people after we prayed for deliverance and God has given them a certain level of de deliverance, but they still have a big mess in their lives. He said, I turn them over to those former Mennonite guys because they know how to do discipleship. And so then they disciple them and, and, then, and they, they bring them to the places that we don't know how to bring them. And he said, you people know how to do discipleship. It's one of our strengths. And we have opportunities today to move into the world in places where there's been a lot of evangelism done. And there are a lot of first-generation churches. And we can move into those situations and do discipleship. And I believe that it's one of the callings that God has for us as a church. And if we don't step up to the plate and do it, some of those churches are going to veer off into apostasy 
and into to, uh, follow, following some charismatic leader who takes them off into doctrinal error. And I just believe there's opportunities for us to get out into the world and do some of those discipleship uh, things. Raymond Burkholder, who's with IGO, uh, goes into many countries and does uh, pastor's conferences. In one of his uh, conferences in India, he was there, and, and they had room for 700 pastors in the conference. When the time of the conference came, they had more than twice the, the number of people who wanted to come to the conference that, as what they could take. And so they took 700 people. The next year, they did another conference, and the same thing happened. So they said, okay, if you were at last year's conference, you can't attend this year. You have to let somebody else have a chance. And so they're rotating through the conference because there's not room for everybody to come every year. The problem we have here in North America, so around the world there are people who have never had the opportunity to be taught. They've never had an opportunity to go to a Bible Institute or to go to a, a weekend meeting like this or to have any kind of, of, of spiritual input or training as a pastor. And so there's, a, there's a, a tremendous desire for it. Here in North America, we've had so much teaching and so much instruction that we're kind of like a person who eats steak every day. And we get kind of bored with it and we get kind of tired of it. And so we get the steak for today and we kind of look at it and we turn it over and we say, well, this isn't quite the, like the one I had yesterday. And it's okay, but, you know, I, and yet there are people who are living in spiritual hunger. And I just believe that with the opportunities that we've had and the spiritual foundation that we have, there's a place for us to get into the world and do what God has, uh, has for us to do in the world. I just encourage you young people. To, to be focused on what God could do with the things that he's brought to your generation and be serious about impacting the world for Christ. Because ultimately we know that before the throne of God, one day there's going to be a great multitude from every tribe and every language and every nation. And today, that multitude is being assembled. That people are being added to that number. And I believe if we could spend five minutes in that multitude, we'd come back with a different perspective on life, when we'd come back and say, if that's what it's like, then we really need to get the message out. And I just encourage you to uh, think about your relationship with the gospel, your relationship with the broken world around you, and look at what you can do to impact the world for Christ. There will be men and women from all around the globe there before the throne. In January of 2009, they say the most diverse crowd that uh, ever gathered in the United States was gathered in Washington, D.C. for the inauguration of President Obama. But that was nothing compared to what's going to be at the throne before God. His multitude is going to be way more diverse and way larger than that crowd in Washington, D.C. His promises are true. He's dependable. We can count on what he says to come. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. All others will bow the knee to him and confess his superiority. That's the Jesus we're serving. That's the name that we're making known in the world. I, in our town in Sulakaut a few months ago, suicide, youth suicide has been a huge issue in Northwestern Ontario, and there have been many, many youth who have taken their own lives. At the high school this past year, there were just uh, a number of young people, students, who throughout this last school year have taken their own lives in February the school organized a, um, an event for, and they invited spiritual leaders in the community to come and meet with the young people and pray with them and, and give them some encouragement and let them know that we as a community are standing with them. I went to that event and there were, they invited us as pastors from the town. They also invited the native traditional 
uh, uh, spiritual leaders there. The native traditional spiritual leaders came and they brought their drums and they brought their sweet grass and their tobacco and their food offerings and they offered food to the spirits and they drummed and they invited the spirits to come and all those things and be able to stand there with those youth and be able to say, but it's Jesus who knows your name. It's Jesus who knows what you're going through. It's Jesus who cares about you. That is significant and that is a message that is the good news of the gospel. I remember when we were living in Haiti uh, during the, uh, the season, the Ra-Ra season, we had neighbors that were uh, into the voodoo religion and they would start their services uh, when it got dark in the evening and they would do their drumming and their uh, voodoo worship services throughout the night and until it got light in the morning. And one night we were in bed and all night long uh, over at our neighbor's house, the voodoo service was going on and they were drumming and, and, and um, doing their ceremonies all night long, lots of volume and, and all night long, I'd be waking up and, and hearing the drums and just kind of doze off, wake up and hear the drums some more. It went on all through the night. In the morning when it got light, it stopped. And very soon after the sun came up, one of our neighbor ladies on the other side got up and she was outside sweeping outside her house. And she started singing, Jesus, 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 Jesus is the only name I know. And I thought, what a contrast to... Uh, the bondage and the darkness of voodoo, and then to have a person delivered by the power of Christ, and as the sun comes up to say, it's Jesus. And that's the message that we have to bring to the world. And so we think about our relationships with each other in the church and all those things, but the purpose of all that is to bring a message of good news to a world that's broken and that's lost. And I just want to encourage you as a church and as an individual to think about how God wants you to engage with a broken and lost world around you and what you can do. That doesn't mean that you need to go anywhere. It just means that where you are, that you represent Christ and that you represent him well. Some of you have businesses and you can be a missionary in your business. You're interacting with people who are hurting and exhausted and discouraged and they come into your place of business and, and you can be an encourager right there and have a testimony for Christ right there in your business. Some of you are in the trades and you get out and and you meet people, and, and you're going to meet people who are tired and discouraged and who are beaten down by what's happening in their lives, and you, you get to represent Christ. And I just believe that as, we go, as you go about this community, you can have an impact on this community for Christ, and certainly the Lord will call some of you to some other place in the world to make an impact on people in other places in the world, and someday we'll be in that great multitude around the throne, and we'll meet those people who have been influenced by what God has done through the efforts of you here as a congregation. And my desire is that God would use you in amazing ways around the world for his kingdom. Let's bow our heads to pray. Lord, we thank you for the kingdom. We thank you for the church. Lord, it's great to be part of your plan to change the world. And Lord, I just pray that you would help us to be focused, to be disciplined, to use our resources and our energies for your kingdom purposes. Lord, you have blessed us in so many ways and we live in an amazing country, an amazing part of the world. We have resources that are beyond the wildest dreams of most of the population of the, the earth today. And we have a tremendous opportunity to be in relationship with you. We've been brought into a situation where we've been brought in contact with the gospel. We've heard the message of the good news 
we've responded to that message and you've brought us into your kingdom and into your family. Lord, help us to take that good news to a lost world. And I just pray in particular that you would be with the young people here this evening, those who have 40, 50 years of life ahead of them. I just pray that you would give them your vision for their lives, that you would give them your vision for the world, that you would help them to see the world as you see it, and that you would help them to know how they can impact the world for your kingdom and for the church. Lord, I pray that you would bless them, and I pray that out of this congregation you would raise up men and women who would respond to your call to go to other nations and other people groups and to share the gospel in places where it has not yet been fully comprehended and understood. Lord, I pray that you would make this congregation a, a tremendous influence in this community. I pray that you would open doors of opportunity for them to share with their neighbors and their business associates and their friends and their clients and customers the good news of the gospel. I pray that you would uh, give them favor with the people in this community. I pray that you would bless them in their, in their interactions, and I pray that you would uh, use them to make a difference in this community for eternity, and that someday around your throne there would be people from the Gladys and Lynchburg region that would be around your throne because of the way people in this congregation have chosen to live their lives and to express their faith in you. I pray that you'd bless, bless their ministry in the prison, their clubs, their outreach ministries that they have, and I just pray that you would use them for your purposes and that you would help them to be significant for eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.